0: All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Wendy Foster, Director of Engineering and Data Science at Shopify. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Wendy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sam. I'm so excited to be here. Longtime fan, first time participant.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited to hear that and looking forward to our conversation. We'll be talking a bit about your group at Shopify and what you do and digging into your perspective on data-centric AI and how you make that real at Shopify. I'd love to have you get us started by sharing a bit about your background and how you came to work in the field.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's Definitely been a long and twisty journey. So I'll try and be fairly concise about it. But I don't think I'm actually unique, especially in the data science or machine learning field, which is highly cross-disciplinary by nature, but I started out training in the humanities. I have a doctorate in literature and cultural studies. But while doing that work, I was oriented always toward technology studies in particular, which meant I was always hacking and kind of stretching outside of the traditional boundaries of the humanities. And when I finished that doctorate, I think many folks, I wanted to work in the real world. I didn't want to stay in academia and I wanted to work in technology. So I was really fortunate to find, which was at the time, a very new integrated program. So it was at Simon Fraser University. It was a master's in interactive arts and technology, hmm. which combined humanities and sociology with computer science and art. And it was a big incubator actually for a lot of incredible design thinking talent that was aiming at the game industry, which was a big passion point for me So those are kind of the two big steps that I took that I would say brought me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by how data could be visualized and turned into experiences for end users. That was probably the first step I took into data science. And I was fortunate enough after I graduated to move to Toronto from Vancouver at the time and get a job at Copo Books. And I think I was there first, the time they were calling it insights and visualization analytics. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And so what do you do at Shopify.
1: Yeah, I do a lot of interesting things. I'll say and talk a little bit about my group. We're called Core Optimize. We're part of our core platform group. And there's two big investment areas within Core Optimize. We have a product development capacity. And if I reduce it to its most foundational product instantiations, it's the reporting and analytics services that we provide to merchants to help them understand their business better and make better decisions for their business. Mm -hmm. We have embedded within that capacity and algorithms group. So they look for opportunities for what we call horizontal leverage. And what horizontal leverage means for us is that any algorithm development we do doesn't just serve our primary group on optimized but can be utilized and extended by other groups across Shopify for their products. So a key product for us in that space or key algorithmic product for us in that space is product categorization. So product categorization is useful for an incredibly wide array of domains. It can help reduce toil on merchant workflow, but it's also incredibly useful as a facet for search and discovery. It helps other teams make better decisions about merchant bucketing, just as some very, very small examples there.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we wanted to talk a little bit about data-centric AI and and categorization is an area that that comes into play for you. Yeah. maybe take a step back, this idea of data-centric AI, how familiar are you with that? And how has that concept landed for you in thinking about the work that you do at Shopify?
1: Yeah, absolutely. actually been thinking about it for probably several years, and I don't know if the framing for that existed many, many years ago, but I think when I think about differentials between data-centric and model-centric AI, I think back to several companies ago when we were building recommendation projects, a very small startup, and with a very enthusiastic group of engineers and machine learning experts, where we were very, very excited about all the parameter tuning we could do and very, very excited about 0.002% improvement in our model performance. And we were fortunate enough at the startup to have a very rich, wide and deep data set. So our data quality from a coverage perspective was exceptional. Mm -hmm. And so the the data was always a rich source for us. And we really put less attention on it than we should have and spent a lot of time playing with Mm micro-optimizations. I don't know that if I framed it in terms of those kind of concepts that we're talking about now at that point. Yeah. But as I moved through my career and went into different organizations and I'll say organizations of different scale and different access to data, those concepts started becoming more separated for me. And also at organizations of different scale, and I'll say Shopify in particular, we orient all of our decision making, whether it's technical or product around the merchant problem. So if I talk about merchant centricity as being highly linked to a direction for teams to be data centric versus model centric, they're incapable of being extricated from each other in my mind. If I care about what's doing best for the merchant and improving merchant success, I want us to care way more in our approach about data quality and data coverage than I want people to care about the I think the the micro details of parameter tuning and I'm going to be incredibly poor and say I know someone's said it better. And I'm pretty sure it was Andrew Ng, but it's I think when he talks about it, he talks about it as the difference between being able to make an impact and not making an impact at all, but satisfying our engineering needs to engineer things. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And so are there when you talk about data quality in the context of Shopify, how would you kind of assess data quality at Shopify? And what are some of the things that you think about to address, maintain, improve data quality there?
1: Yeah. I mean, in some senses, it's linked to data governance for us. So a big part of data quality for me is trustworthiness across our different data sets. Are we cleaning and transforming when the transformation is necessary in appropriate ways? And when we transform it in one place, is it consistent with how we've transformed it in another? Mm -hmm. Is it reliable? Do we have good SLAs on those data sets? And especially this is... Clearly, particularly important for our data pipelines and our model pipelines, ensuring we have proper service-level understandings of that, both for our customers, but as well as for our internal teams who are building off of it. Are we a big part of data governance is ensuring that our merchants' data is well protected? So having structures that keep us attentive to that. And for like the modeling side specifically, a piece that I care about is coverage and freshness. So with something, to use the example of the product categorization piece, our merchants are incredibly unique. So in Shopify, we, we understand them as entrepreneurs because their behavior is very robust to change and dynamic, right? So it means that as they see the world changing around them, they're constantly updating their products or their inventories or making business pivots that allow them to be able to sell better and have higher clearly higher success for themselves but for us what this means is that ensuring that we're always bringing fresh data into our modeling like approaches is not just important but it's critical. Like it's more critical than worrying about the model architecture itself. That's not to say we don't do model Mm -hmm. improvements because also you have to update your model. You can rely on the architectures that you kind of get for free with the incredible work that people have already done. But for product categorization, like an evolution where we did care about updating the model was bringing image data into our consideration versus just relying on textual data. So... Mm -hmm. We do care about ensuring our model is robust, but attentiveness to how the data is changing underneath us, sometimes on a daily basis, is the most interesting and exciting thing for us, I think. So that's the data centricity part. We need to care about it because it's a integral part of how merchants behave on our platform.
0: Interesting. It sounds like, in a sense, you're saying that the kind of the time scale of innovation around the data versus the model is very different with the data it's something you're thinking about constantly yes whereas with the model there are kind of bigger boulders that you might take on like integrating the image information but beyond changes to the model that come from changes to the data the those the changes are fewer and further between
1: Yeah, you nailed it. Absolutely. It's the dynamism of the data that I think is most important to us. And as I said, produces better model results. The more attentive to it we are, the more we foreground coverage um, versus keeping tweaking accuracy of existing things we're already pretty good at, I think has helped us be more successful with this particular investment anyway. Mm
0: -hmm. Elaborate on that a bit. What does foregrounding coverage mean to you?
1: Yeah, so if I think about merchant products, because we have a high degree of diversity in the types of merchants who are using the platform, but also in the types of products they sell and not just between merchants, but the rapidity of which merchants change and pivot their own merchandising base as well. So it's just a highly dynamic product environment, right? So it has to be foregrounded so that we can understand if what we're even inferring from them is gonna be useful for it. So the expansion of coverage piece to me, is you can get really good at it, like a category of it. We're inferring product type from our product data, which was the first step we took with this product categorization model. You can get really good at it because, to a large extent, merchandising and inventory around clothing is relatively stable, or we can make the gap jumps much easier there. Mm-hmm. But our merchants who might sell clothing today might pivot and sell power tools tomorrow. For like our, our long tail merchants, right? So it requires us to not just be good at one very large category of product type, but to be very, very good at starting to build out understanding of some of those dynamic changes that are happening with transformations in industry for merchants. So we want to be equally good at inferring product type for clothing as we want to be for home goods, as we want to be for bicycles and power tools. It's a pretty rich tale of product types for sure.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking as an example of this, thinking back to my conversation, the last conversation I had with Salma, the former head of data at Shopify. And we spoke quite a bit about the impact of COVID on the company. And I'm imagining, as you're describing, you know, these merchants that are selling clothes one day and all of a sudden, you know, you have masks pop up on the platform and, you know, no one was selling masks before. Is that the kind of thing that you're, Referring to
1: yeah, I think it was probably more acute, or you saw those changes happen more frequently during uh, the most impactful early stages of COVID. But I would also say that dynamism in like adjusting your business to meet market needs, even if it's not as rapid a transformation, mm-hmm. we see as typical behavior for entrepreneurs figuring out their mm. business models especially in very very early stage anyway
0: so it's not just something you need to look at when yeah. we're going through a pandemic it's just constant
1: yeah it's always yeah for sure
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and is it is the impact on categorization when you when you have wholly new products that are introduced to the platform or is it different products offered by different vendors, or what are the conditions that most impact the categorization effort and impact coverage?
1: Yeah, it's probably a bit of both, but I would say the higher interest, at least for me right now, is on merchants updating their products. I mean, one of the ways we've productized this at Shopify is So merchants have what's called an administrative space when they log into the Shopify platform. And in that administrative place, they have multiple operational pages where they can do things like update their products and shift inventory between uh, stores if they have multiple stores. But for product type, where we're really focused is on their product page. And that's where they do their product updates, add new products, change existing products. And where we surface our inference there is in a category for them, which is called product type. So merchants have a bit of a choice here they can choose to set their own product type or they can use our inference so in some ways it's a nice virtuous circle because if they don't like our inference they can use a custom type and then we can learn from
0: you get a label
1: what they didn't like about our label but Mm -hmm. it's it's actually like a key function for them to get that right because the idea of a product type is connected to a product category taxonomy that isn't just useful for us in other parts of Shopify to help merchants merchandise better or market their services better or for merchants to be able to do that themselves using themselves or third-party apps but they typically are because they're entrepreneurs sell across multiple channels so that product type taxonomic product reference is actually a thing now ideas of taxonomies are not interesting to merchants in general they just want it to be right and exportable to like Mm -hmm. facebook marketplaces or Google marketplaces, right, wherever else they sell their products. And so when I think of us being able to get this thing right and have the highest coverage for them, I think about how they can actually use it to amplify their success across all of the channels they care about. And if they're updating products like very, very quickly, we have to have a real-time inference and we have to make sure that that inference is correct enough so that it doesn't become a frustrating aspect of a workflow that changes often for them if they're a a merchant who is involved in dynamic product updates. And quite frankly, most of them are because if you're a one or two person organization, you're going to be constantly in those pages updating how you describe your products, how you even the images around them, right? Because you're always trying to tweak and optimize that experience to find your audience and your fit. So they are highly experimental. They change things all the time. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Thinking about that taxonomy What's the relationship between human curators, taxonomists, and machine learning in creating that taxonomy?
1: Yeah. So for the initial stages of our product categorization, we kind of did a couple of things. We leveraged the Google product taxonomy to have a reference point for what that tree structure should look like for merchants. And we also employed subject matter experts to help us label those initial efforts, both within house and as like a third-party service. So once you reach a a certain critical mass of, I mean, we focused on clothing or apparel to start with to get right really well, because you don't need a lot of high domain expertise to label pants effectively or a pair of socks. So we got a lot of leverage from that. And it's also one of our biggest merchant categories at Shopify. So it was a great scaffolded place for us to start. So once we got enough good, accurate labels to be able to have confidence in our inferences on the product type, we were able to build this experience to surface the inference into that operational page that merchants use to manage their products. And once we had that space in, then we could start expanding our understanding, right? Because of the fields that surround that operation. So our inference, if they wanted to accept it or reject it, the custom types that they would add, Product titles, product descriptions are also in that operational page as well as tags. So additional metadata are all merchant generated. So we've been able to kind of bootstrap the model with subject matter expertise, labeling a really well-known domain and then start trying to stretch it into unfamiliar domains.
0: What's an example of domain in this case? Is it clothing to power tools or is it more you know within clothing one to the next?
1: Yeah, yeah I guess actually all of it if i'm being honest so it's like uh, like clothing will have like your clearly your top level i guess product types that are most recognizable to us so like pants shirts socks mm-hmm. so you want the ability to be able to navigate down and number of leaves in a sock category For sure. And it gets harder, clearly, as you get more granular, because then it becomes for merchants, and I think for buyers as well, more, maybe that becomes more the domain knowledge, how you define a very particular pair of pants as chinos versus blue jeans, it starts becoming just more refined. But I think really the parent part of that taxonomy node is the most important one to get right so apparel clothing would be the large categories but yeah to your point also extending it to other sellable domains those could be power tools it could be home decor and living when you think of the broad areas we would want to search for useful things under but it can also be incredibly niche like there's going to be massive amounts of edge cases where there's one product that someone's selling and it's a very particular type of let's say iron-on badge or something right Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a really complicated area. Well-known domains are clearly easier to access and learn than um, your edge cases.
0: And when did you first introduce images to the categorization?
1: Oh, it would have been last year. The work on this is probably only about a year and a half old now. So it started out modeling just using the textual descriptions attached to products. So the title, description, product description, I think it was also vendor and some of the metadata we also collect from it. So tags that merchants would add to those product like uploads. And then it was later on in that year, maybe it was like a handful of months later where the model was extended to incorporate images.
0: Mm -hmm. And talk a little bit about that process of extending it to incorporate the images. The, The images were already in place, part of this data set, so you didn't have to collect any additional information how did you vectorize the images and did you already have kind of an embedding space for product images or?
1: There had been experiments done on it before so if I'm recalling correctly I actually think it was done during a hack days. Someone who I actually like I think it was actually one person we ended up bringing over to the the team had done a hack days on creating vector space for the images so that might have been what's accessed. I'd have to go back and look through kind of the decision log around that but the images, product images are stored separately from the textual descriptions for the product type because they're like media assets or a different data store, right? So merging the pipelines was non-trivial, absolutely, but absolutely necessary improvement to the model for us to, I think, be able to, I mean, my feeling is, is that it was necessary in order for us to be able to start extending into subsequent domains and also build, I think, real future thinking around how we want to extend the model and our understanding of products in the future, because you look at like how merchants, as I said, they're highly experimental. And one of the things that's really important to them, or I think images comes into play or us understanding the images piece better. We're not doing this today, but I'm kind of want the team to be thinking about it today. Is what happens when that converts to 3D? Right, So I think it's like a table stake activity now for when you go browsing, you want not necessarily the whole augmented reality experience that's still available in very limited spaces, but you want to be able to touch that image on your screen, rotate it, see its dimensions. And I think for me, the image that's typically uploaded with a product is just a stepping stone for us to be able to do inference from 3D models that merchants might want to engage to. I mean, we support it in like parts of the Shopify platform, so it's a it's a necessary addition.
0: Meaning, it, currently, merchants can upload three D or multiple perspective images
1: yeah there's aspects through their experience where they can be able to create 3d experiences for buyers to be able to do the image like manipulation which is i think like i consider it table stakes in terms of buyer experience now not all merchants do that but i think it's A growing expectation that there's that affordances i mean to an extent it's for a merchant to be able to provide that image they have to have probably a certain amount of resources but those are getting more and more accessible and i do think it's a space uh, we need to be thinking about in terms of building into anything around product understanding we do going forward
0: got it got it i'm curious about maybe other challenges involved in this particular aspect of the project
1: I mean, there's technical challenges that come with working and productionizing with large-scale models. So this particular work really it was a primary use case. I'll, I'll say it this way, a primary use case for the evolution of our internal machine learning platform. So it was definitely pushing on technical boundaries. From a product perspective, we had to open ourselves up to new spaces where this would be leverageable. And like, as I said, we orient all of our decisions on what we decide to put our time against on like the highest merchant problems. So this requires the team, maybe this is true of a lot of teams that are building algorithms that they want to have impact on the world outside of their lab or like their team space, but it can't be a build it and they will come kind of venture, right? It's like the decision to work on product categorization meant the team had to do a lot of outreach to teams across Shopify to be able to identify the very best opportunities for product fit. Right, We can build our own products around it. And as I said, that creates a bit of a virtuous circle for us because we get better and enriched data from um, having especially that surface to our admin. But we also want that that inference to be important for the company outside of our team. So creating those relationships and intersecting roadmaps is incredibly challenging. And I actually think it's probably one of the biggest challenges for industry-like level machine learning. It's like it's very, probably very, very rare that one team can support both building like the algorithm and the constellation of products around it without making those relationships with other teams. So your company also has to be at scale. What we actually saw is that working on the algorithm and trying to build against it almost in parallel was an impossibility, right? So you have to be Mm -hmm. building ahead, you have to have strategic foresight to understand what are the right things to build, and then making those connections to product spaces that would benefit from it becomes so much easier.
0: What were the hardest parts about it?
1: The hardest parts about it is really just getting teams to understand the runway, right? So if you're doing, especially if you're building in a, a new space, and you have like an MVP model, but you may need the decisions you make around how to improve it, even if it's just from a data coverage like perspective, have to be with an eye about where that output of like that model is going to find a home. Is it for an internal application? Then you probably build your roadmap instead of optimization priorities around a completely different space than if you know merchant-facing teams are going to leverage it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned that you found it really difficult to build the model and build the products around the model. And I'm curious, that's a little bit counterintuitive in the sense of assuming you've got the product domain expertise on the same team, you know, minimizing communication barriers, just having everything in one place, you think Mm -hmm. you can move quicker, but it sounds like there were some inherent challenges with that. And I'm I'm curious about those.
1: Yeah. It's mostly a timing thing, right? And this is true of where you want Mm. that model output to be useful for teams outside of yourself, where you have even less control about the staging of the product building against the algorithm development, right? So when The model development cycle, I think this is actually true of any machine learning work or data science work, probably generally, the cycle of how you build that is very, very different from the software development cycle or the product development cycle more generally. So the model has to be built. We have to have some degree of confidence in it before product opportunities can be software developed against it. Right. So it's not that the challenge is, can we think of products to build around the output of a product categorization model? The challenge is, how do you time that for internal team? Like if we own all of the teams, product teams and the algorithms team that are building against it, the staging is probably easier. Right. Mm hmm. It was easier for us, but we don't want to just be the only team leveraging this output. So if we want another team across Shopify, let's say our search and discovery team, to be able to use the output of a product categorization model for a search facet, we have to understand where on their roadmap that work might be located, if at all, and if it's not, be able to influence them to put it on their roadmap and then ensure the way we're having to optimize, if that's required, to be a to make the output as useful as possible for that other team, is our work going to be able to time out and align with how they've scheduled their work? It's complicated enough to do all of those roadmap alignments within one team, clearly far more possible. Much, much more difficult to do it with external teams, even within your own organization, especially when you're hoping, as we are, that this horizontal asset can help not just one team or two teams, but a dozen teams, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mostly just about managing timelines and getting other teams who don't support this kind of work, like the algorithm development work on their own teams explicitly, understand the actual length of time it takes to build these kind of products, because that's also an unknown too.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Shopify recently published a blog post about Merlin, a new ML platform at the company. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between your team and, and that platform and, and even the categorization product in that platform?
1: Yeah.
0: How do they fit together?
1: Yeah, they fit together very closely, actually. So the machine learning platform is a relatively new investment for Shopify. I'm probably going to be mistaken here, but I think it's less than like two years old. So the teams that are working in Shopify and building machine learning applications were the initial use cases for Merlin. So the team that I support who is building these horizontal like algorithms were one of the first use cases for Merlin. But again, I say this is from a product against data platform is a product and so building and evolving something as complicated as a machine learning platform in parallel with a team who's building large-scale like multimodal models is a challenge so we feed in requirements and we follow along the roadmap and as we're able to take advantage of more and more of the capabilities that the machine learning platform makes available we migrate to them. Right, So I think we started out with the algorithms team building standalone pipelines that were built in a way that when Merlin was able to support those on platform, it was a fairly simple migration effort. And same with taking advantage of the feature store that's being built out too. It's like we're moving into near real-time inference production and that's on their roadmap. So when they're able to support that, we'll be able to to merge there, but it's an exceptional team doing incredibly hard work with an enormous amount of stakeholders across the organization. So (laughs) I'm super happy with their progress and their level of partnership with us. They basically are filters for the pain the team is experiencing and that gets roadmapped into feature sets that are prioritized by them.
0: Got it. Got it. We've talked quite a bit about the categorization use case. What are some other use cases that your team's been working on?
1: So I think for us, the product space is not completely exhaustible if I'm talking just about like the algorithms work, but that doesn't mean the domain space of merchant value is exhausted that we can do in much smaller efforts. So I think when we think about the large scale data work, to me, it's a lot of it's exploratory, right? Like what large data sets do we have that we think can provide merchant value? I think we still have a lot of mining that we need to do on the product data set specifically, but smaller areas that I think are useful for merchants that can help them understand their business better is to really help them benchmark against themselves, be able to have actually sensitive instead of of out-of-the-box forecasts for their businesses. It sounds like simple work, but the models for supply and demand on each individual merchant use case can look incredibly different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some merchants even have, I think one merchant like described it to me as they have a model where just for their business, where they loan things out and then get them back. Something like for forecasting them, if you're doing inventory forecasting for them, would look very different than inventory forecasting for a merchant that sells something. And once you sell it, it's gone. They're like, yeah. well, we get stuff in from say like our distributor A and then we lend it out to a whole bunch of customers. And then we wait to get that back. And then we're also getting new products from different domains. And so they're like, how do I understand my business better? I'm like, that is a really hard challenge Yeah. because it's, I don't actually think it's probably not super unique, especially merchants are very creative about how they manage their businesses now. But it's enough of an edge case that it wouldn't fit into a generalizable forecast model we might be want to be able to provide to merchants as a tool to use in their admin in our analytics home, as an example. So I think that that one's really mm-hmm. hard i think
0: i wouldn't have imagined that shopify supported that at all
1: merchants like
0: (laughs) well the, the lending use case let alone forecasting it but even the inventory management parts of it and some of the more basic mechanics of that that business
1: yeah the inventory like management support i am pretty sure doesn't account fully for that kind of model so it Mm. positive it's not part of like our tooling but i got it merchants are incredibly creative so (laughs) they find ways to use the platform for their immediate needs and then creative ways often sometimes they contract out new services or find third-party apps that can support them to be able to extend parts of their business so Mm. They're being creative about how they support that too. And for one person, like merchant businesses, maybe they can kick-glove that to a large extent for themselves too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for them, it's really understanding how to build that kind of business effectively is not just a tooling challenge from any e-commerce solution they might use, Shopify in this case, but also from an understanding perspective. So the analytics products we provide need to, I don't know if we'd be able to handle the specificities of that use case, but I know how flexible we can be on building that kind of forecast Model that allows merchants to have some autonomy over controlling aspects of how you define how that model should work. I think it's probably very similar with pricing, too. The thing they're also interested in is tools that help them experiment with pricing more effectively on their products.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Returning back to this idea of data centric AI versus model centric, and, and the way that you've incorporated that into the categorization use case, you talked about. Just kind of incorporating in the user provided labels into the loop. Like how do you operationalize that?
1: Yeah. So we have that product pretty well instrumented. Really, you can always we always want to improve on that because we learn more. But we know if if we provide an, an inference, when you think of the field, it's like a light suggestion in it. So when they have the product type in their admin, it's like a Grayed out so they can say, Hey, we're recommending this product type for you to use. And if they click in the text field, then it populates that text field and then they can attach it to their inventory. But they can also choose to ignore that field, and there's an opportunity for them to enter a custom type and also what they'll do regardless of whether they select a product type or not is usually include tags, descriptive tags for their product, which is helps to make it more discoverable. It's a really rich source of metadata for them to leverage. So we know if they accept our suggestion, if they click in that field and then apply it to their product. So that's all part of our product dataset model. So it's like, it's incorporated by default. Awesome.
0: Well, Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share a bit about what you and your team are up to. Very cool stuff.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twiMLAI.com. Of course,